Hello boys and girls. You are listening to the Oracle Bus. This is the place to get the news, trends, and topics that have the bloggers blogging. Welcome to the Oracle Buzz, Episode 2. As you heard in the intro, this is the place to get all the news that matters. <laughs> nah, who am I kidding? This is the place to hear the stuff that interests me, and I hope you find it as interesting as I do. Enough about you, let's talk about me. My last podcast, which was also my first podcast, had the volume a little bit too low, so I wanted to check. Can you hear me now? I'm hoping this is better. I guess I won't know until I save it. Actually, last time I saved it and listened to it, and it's still too low. Anyway... Hey, if you like that female voice that did the intro, check out the AT&T Labs text-to-voice website. The link is at my blog. It's really cool. You can pick different voices. You can even do different languages, so it's uh, pretty neat to play with. Anyway, the news this week was pretty light. Actually, the last two weeks, I guess, has been. So instead of news, I'm going to answer a question from my blog about methodology and tell you a story having to do with methodology. And I'll end with a highlight of some of the topics being covered on XE, on the XE forum at OTN. And... Uh, I did a beta test of the new Yahoo Mail interface, and I'll let you know how that went. First up is a question from John. He posted this on my entry for XML and OO. It says, Lewis, your postings are really interesting and helpful. I would like to know if you recommend any kind of database development methodology from information gathering to deployment and all those considerations we have to keep in mind for standard deployment. Thanks, John. Uh, John, first, thanks for the question. I appreciate you, your post. Uh, I can't recommend a particular methodology. I've used Oracle's AIM, CMM, different government standards. Uh, what I will recommend is to have some, some kind of methodology and stick with it through the entire project. The steps that have worked for me reads kind of like a checklist. Start off, you get good requirements. Get those from the user. Don't make it up yourself. That's incredibly important for a successful project. Build a high-level design can be as simple as some rough screens or it can be a thousand page document. Whatever it takes to describe those requirements in a technical way. What you're trying to do with a high level design is explain to the user what it is you're going to do. They should understand it. They should agree it. Keep it at a very high level. You don't want to talk about code. You want to talk about modules. Just the idea of what you're going to do and maybe a general description of the architecture. Next up is the detailed design should be very detailed in my opinion should be down to the module level exactly what you're going to add or change you should be able to take a detailed design and give it to anyone if you have the luxury of dedicated testers after you get the high level design and while you're working on the detailed design they can be working on test plans to have someone besides you test it and have a plan of what they're going to test helps a lot if you can get that ahead of time that's even better it should be from the high level design not from what you coded if you test what you coded what's obviously going to do what you just coded. So, The designs and test plans follow are followed by the actual coding and you want your code to stick to the design. If something comes up you need to change it. Don't start coding around your design. Go back and change your design and then code again. Make sure you have a coherent project. Then the coding obviously is followed by the testing. If you can get your test team to do it that's great. If not just be as thorough as possible. And something that I think gets skipped is a, an implementation checklist. What do you need to compile? Where does it need to go? And in what order does it need to get there? Having that kind of a checklist has saved my butt several times on several larger projects. And it's if it's a small project, then it should be very simple to put together. I think you should always have it. Uh, peer review should be performed as often as possible after each design step, code step, everything. But you must have a peer review after detailed design and after coding. 
if you're working on a project by yourself, I guess you can't you can't peer review your own code, but I think peer reviews are one of the key pieces of any methodology. And that's it, really. I think it's pretty simple. It's a few documents. The best methodology is going to have good documentation and code that follows your design. There should be checks in place to make sure that the code does that. And again, that's the peer review. Uh, speaking of peer reviews, uh, I'll go ahead and tell you a story. Uh, I'll call it, Why Do We Do Peer Reviews? All the names have been changed, and I'm not going to say where I was working when this happened. And I don't want anyone to take it as me making fun of the developer that I was working with. I'm really not. What I'm trying to make a point of is that something that seems obvious to one person is not obvious to another, and that's why we do peer reviews. In this case, what seemed obvious to me was not obvious to four or five other people. So into the story. Part of my job at this particular client involved reviewing developer code before it went to production. That was just one part of what I did. Uh, there were two reviews for, performed for any code. It went to a developer on the developer's team first. They went through it to make sure standards were followed and that the code was doing what the design said it should. And that was on a module-by-module module piece. Uh, at the end, it came to me as kind of a, an application-level review and that was uh, not just me, you know, the, any of the senior people, but in this instance it was me. And this was to ensure standards are followed, coding standards, naming standards, things like that. Make sure the overall architecture was efficient. Make sure that exceptions were being handled. Kind of the same thing that the first developer does, but at, an, at a little bit larger level. Uh, I was asked to do a review one day for a developer, and it was a pretty interesting project. The project lead and the developer and myself were going to be in a room sitting and talking about it. I got the code the day before, and I sat down with my red pen and uh, went through it. I usually go through uh, the code three times. Once I read through, just getting the feel of what it's doing. Again, I go through looking for naming standards, exception handlers, things like that. And then I go back and look for performance. I actually look at each cursor, look at each loop whatever it's doing in the code and I, while I'm doing that I'm also looking at maintainability are things hard-coded could they be pulled from a table yada 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 this code was actually very readable it was pretty amazing it was uh, some of the best exception handling I've ever seen had plenty of comments it was indented well it was uh, it really followed the standards had a couple of naming things that I marked up but that was about it it was it was very clean very readable code my third read-through though is where I, I caught something uh, this program selected from a couple of tables as a join, not as separate cursors. It selected that data using bulk collect into a set of arrays and then manipulate, manipulated that data a little bit and wrote it out to a text file. Something looked weird to me and after some in-depth reading I realized the bulk collect was not in a loop. The Where it wrote out to the text file was in a loop, but the actual bulk collect itself was not it was just a select bulk collect into and this could still be okay depending on how big the table was I wasn't real familiar with this data so it was something I was going to ask about but not necessarily an alarm when we had the meeting I mentioned the standard things and they took notes and was going to make the change and then I asked about the bulk collect I said how often would we be running this the answer was daily okay that's still fine and I asked about how many records will you be processing in each run the answer was oh about 10 million I just about choked <laughs> Um, 10 million select bulk collect into. Okay, that's going to be some pretty large arrays. So what I said was 10 million rows, and you're bulk collecting all of that at once? The answer was yes. No uh, <laughs> no explanations or anything, just yes. 
So I asked, why wouldn't you lim use a limit clause to restrict the number of records in each collect? And the answer I got back was, what's a limit clause? So I explained that if you don't use a limit clause, you'll end up with bunches and bunches of memory being used. And <laughs> what I said was, you'll never get this past the DBAs. And I got back, well, it already did. And I said, well, what do you mean it already did? The DBA should be reviewing that after this review. Oh, normally they would, but they've been looking at it for a couple of weeks now trying to fix the error. <laughs> All right, it's getting an error? Uh, yeah, but the DBA said it wouldn't happen in production. And what error is it getting? I had to ask. I mean, <laughs> something about memory. Ah. So I asked something about the PGA? Yep. And that pretty much <laughs> explained about my limit clause. I explained that concept to him that the limit will only take a piece of the data at a time in a loop. Each time it comes back around, it takes the next set. The developer made the changes and came to see me in a couple of days and said for the first time ever the program completed in the test environment. Now, my mind was completely boggled by the DBA response to this. I can't believe they were planning on putting this into production. For one, it had never actually run in test to completion, so that means it had never really been tested. Another is, I don't care what machine you put it on, you have 10 million rows, say they're 100 bytes each, that's a lot of space. We're talking a gigabyte just in one nested table. I have a hard time believing this would have run successfully even in production, unless you're just going to put it on an obscenely large machine for no real reason. Very simple code change went back and fixed it. And that's why I'm saying the peer reviews are something you got to do. This developer had never seen a, had never seen a limit clause. The DBAs working on this apparently had never seen the limit clause, and we ended up with what we ended up with. I, after talking to the developer some more, uh, I suggested that they start with a limit of 100 and bump it up until they didn't really see an improvement, and they ended up with a limit of 500. It really is amazing. And now I want to talk a little about the Oracle XE support form on OTN. If you're using XE, or if you're thinking about using XE, I hope you're out there reading on the XE forum or answering questions, browsing, whatever. Uh, it's a really good forum. It's a peer support forum. There's a lot of good questions and a lot more answers. I've learned a few things out there, that's for sure. Some of the more popular entries are things like, when will we get a production release? And the last I heard, that's early 2006. How do, how do you configure XE HTML DB with an existing HTTP server? And I'm not going to give you the answer to that one. That's uh, one you'll definitely want to read about. Uh, some other common popular things are multiple database homes, installation failing, usually on Windows XP, problems importing HTMLTB applications. That one was a huge one. Uh, how do you do web services? Questions about XE limits, the one CPU, one gig, four gigs of disk thing. Mark Townsend and Tom Kite are really frequent posters. There's some Oracle employees out there posting. There's a lot of really sharp users posting, some DBAs, some developers. It's really good. Uh, if you've got XE issues, that's definitely the place to be. And I want to wrap this up pretty quick, but I did want to bring up the Yahoo email beta. There's a new client on Yahoo or that they're testing on Yahoo. Right now it's just Mail Plus uh, people to pay for the... Uh, joy of using Yahoo, I guess. <laughs> um, but my only explanation is I've been doing it a long time, so I'm still out there. But it's a new client. It looks like Outlook, Outlook Express. That seems to be the industry standard everybody's shooting for. I'm not sure exactly why. 
I'll keep you posted on how it goes. I've already turned it off. It's You can switch back and forth between the old way and the new way. I've already turned off the new way. It took about 10 minutes to suck up 1.5 gigs of RAM. From my reading, that sounds like a, it's supposed to be some kind of a Firefox bug that it doesn't, or Mozilla bug, something that doesn't release memory from JavaScript. And this is obviously very JavaScript intensive. It looks kind of like an Ajax front. It's very rich, um, pure HTML from what I can tell, but very, very rich. Drag and drop. Um, it's The drop downs, the list boxes, everything are real sharp looking. It really is a good looking program. But as long as it's sucking up all my memory, uh, my only choice was to close the browser. I couldn't do anything else in the system. And I just wanted to let you know about that, and that's all I have for tonight. I hope my next podcast is going to be a little bit more newsworthy. Uh, There just wasn't much happening in the last two weeks. Around the 1st, there should be more. I'm going to New Orleans next week for five days. I plan to do record some entries for the podcast from there. Um, it's my first time back in a while, and I'm kind of looking forward to it and dreading it all at the same time. But I'll let you know more about that in the blog and in the future podcast. Other than that, have a good night.